I believe last week I told you that I was going to split 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, 4 through 10 into two sections. I decided if two is good, three is better. And so we're going to do 6 through 8 today, and next week we'll pick up 9 and 10. Let me just kind of give you the lay of the land and kind of why I came to that decision. Hopefully it'll help you uh, to pay attention a little bit better and to understand kind of where we're going. If you look at chapter 2, if you look at chapter 2, you get into verse really kind of 4 through 6, but 6 through 8 is kind of this standalone deal. So you get into 4 through 6, 4 through 5, and he's discussing what he's going to do, what God is going to do with Christians. He says, building you together as a spiritual house. And so corporately, we're all being made into something. Not as, as individuals, but corporately, God is taking you a uh, difficult person to work with. He's taking you easier person to work with. He's taking you talented person, and he's taking you no talent huckster, and he's putting you together, and he's making you into something for himself to offer him spiritual sacrifices. This is what he's doing with us corporately. So he's taking the no talent hack, and he's taking uh, the, the man, the woman that wins all the awards, all the medals, and he's making you into what he would have you to be, not what society says you are, and in that he's building us gloriously together into a spiritual house to offer spiritual sacrifices. And so that's what he's doing for the believer. Well, you get into 7 through 8, and he's talking about what's happening for the unbeliever. And then you get into 9 and 10, and he says, now, this is who you are. And so he's kind of coming back to the Christian, back to the believer. Well, I wanted to break it out so we could focus on each one of these separately. So we know, we know what our corporate identity is, right? He's building us into a spiritual house to offer spiritual sacrifices. We know kind of how we are as individuals. We have come to this stone. The scripture tells us that it is chosen and precious. And when we see it, we have to make a decision. So corporately, we know what we're going to look like. But as individuals, we have to make a decision. And so God has laid this chosen and precious cornerstone down, and we come to it as individuals, and we have to make a decision. Do we believe this thing to be chosen and precious, or do we reject it? Do we reject it? This is the story of all of our lives. It doesn't matter if you were raised in the church, and so from the time your great, 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 great grandfather's grandfather was born, your family has always been in the church. There was a time for you individually where you apprised this thing as being chosen and precious. You submitted your life to your faith. Whether you have a, a heritage of unbelief where my great, 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 great grandfather's grandfather was an atheist and so was his barber. And, and for me, I have this great lineage and heritage of unbelief, of atheism. Or you're on the opposite side and everybody in your family back to Jesus has been a Christian. And so, and this is the kind of lineage that you look at. It doesn't matter. For you, individual, there has to, be, there has to have been a time where you personally made a decision on the person of Jesus. And so what we see in this passage today is what that decision looks like for these two groups. Let me read the passage and then we'll walk through it a little bit. Starting in verse 6, working through the end of verse 8. Peter writes and he says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, who believe, but for those who do not believe. Now look what he does. He says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were we're destined to do. And we'll unpack that here in a little bit. Don't get ahead of us. When Valerie and I lived in Prague, 
we work with a, uh, a group of college students. You, know, you live in Prague, and you understand that the, you're living uh, in a city where it's less than 1% evangelical. And so if, if South Carolina holds a primary, there's just no telling what they're going to vote. And so but when you get into this, these people are less than 1% evangelical. So if you're to walk up and Steve is, is a, a member of this city and say, Hey, Steve, what do you think about God? And Steve would say something like, Oh, I don't know. You know, I've heard the spaghetti monster could be real. I've heard that, you know, these other things. My grandmother thought this, but I just don't know. I, I, I have no idea. I think it's probably impossible to know. And this is... This is probably 99% of the conversations that we had in country. I can think of two students. Uh, There's a guy named Daniel, and then there's a a guy named Slavo. Both atheists from from a long history of being atheists, from just a rich, bold tradition of atheism in their family. Some great atheists in their family. I mean, it's just very different conversations you have with people when their whole country is full of uh, atheists. And so Daniel came to hear of Jesus, and he's really struggling to internalize these things. He's really struggling on the decision of, do I believe and accept, or do I continue on this, this, this thing handed down to me from my parents, from my grandparents, my in- entire culture, my entire country's identity of atheism? And Slavo had the same thing. Now, Slavo's experience was slightly different from Daniel. You see, uh, when he was in college, he came to the U.S., and he had an opportunity to study at Union University in New York, and, and InterVarsity had a ministry there, and InterVarsity said, look, we will send you down to Florida, and you'll stay with a family, and you'll attend a conference, and it'll be good, great, and wonderful. And so this is his background. And so Valerie and I are in front of Slavo, and, and he happens to be the kind of the gatekeeper for this university, and, and we want to come onto this university's campus, and we want to teach a Bible study. And in over 100 years of this university's existence, no single Bible study has ever occurred on this campus. And so he's a very important person to us. And we really need him to, to like us. We need him to let us onto this campus so we can have access to this you know, 30,000, 40,000 uh, group of students here. And so we sit down and Slavo starts telling us that, man, I'm an atheist. My parents are atheists. I don't believe in Christianity. I'm just thinking, well, this meeting's going real well. This be... So when do we start? Do we get a room? How's that going to work for us? And so he starts laying out these things. He's trying to give us his story. And he says, this is my experience with Christianity. I was studying at Union and InterVarsity offered an opportunity for me to go to Florida. And so I lived with this family. And this family was was a group of Christians like you and your wife. And I'm like, oh, Lord, where is he going now? He said, you know, every, every night we'd come in, and I, I attended this conference with their children. Every night we'd come in, and we'd sit down, and, and the dad would look at me. He says, so, do you believe in Jesus now? It's like, no, no, I don't believe in Jesus. And the dad would just shake his head and wring his hands. He'd say, well, tomorrow you will believe in Jesus. Slava would say, what a lunatic, whatever. And so he'd go the next day to the conference, and this went on for five days. Every night, the father would sit down, and he'd say, so you, you believe in Jesus now? And Slava would say, no, I don't believe in Jesus now. See, not everybody who hears the gospel, is going to respond positively. You're probably thinking, well, this story ends with Slavo coming to faith, and and he's just telling you this and setting it up, and he's he's an insider in this university. No. Slavo's telling me this story, and he is militant in his atheism. The only thing Slavo cared about was having sex and being the big man on campus. 
And he did lots of that. He was the huge man on campus. He reminded me of the Russian from Rocky. And so when he, he's telling me these things and shaking my hand and crushing it, it, and I'm just thinking, oh man, there's no way we have this Bible study. And so Slavo's telling us this stuff. He said, look, I heard about Jesus. I heard all the things you're going to say, and ultimately I don't believe. And so what good are you going to be here on this campus? What good are you going to be here? What difference are you going to make in these students' lives? I said, Slavo, I'm so sorry for the way the gospel was presented to you. And I recognize that, Slavo, in my understanding, everybody has an opportunity to respond to the gospel. And there's nothing I can say, there's nothing I can change, twist, or make that's going to compel you to come. That is the role of the Holy Spirit in your life. What Valerie and I would like to do is have access to this campus to give these students an opportunity to make the same response and decision that you did. Are you open to that? In this, this perfect check way. He looked at it and he said, you know what? This is a great experience for these students. And so for him in his mind, it could be completely false, but still be a very valid experience and something that he thought was valuable for these students to be exposed to. And so he led us on the campus. We'll come back to Daniel later. Paul, or Peter opens this up, and look what he says. He says, for it stands in Scripture. Recognize the only valid starting point for any discussion on the person of Jesus is found in Scripture. So your experience might be that Jesus is this great and wonderful person. He's a great encouragement to you. But if the reality of your experience is not found and supported in Scripture, then ultimately your experience is going to go up and down. Your experience can have no real impact on the lives of those you share with. So Peter, quoting out of Isaiah 28, 16, wrote these words. He said, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a cornerstone, chosen and precious. A cornerstone. And he's quoting out of Isaiah, and Isaiah is describing, obviously, this, this idea that God is this epic cornerstone. He says he is chosen and precious. He's chosen, he is, he's assigned. This is a decision that God has made before the foundation of the world. And he describes him as being chosen and precious. And, and he says for those who come effectively to Jesus, and so you come to Jesus and, and Chase has explained kind of who Jesus is, and Chase has to make this decision. Does he believe what scripture says, or does he choose to remain in, in kind of indifference, or does he choose to remain antagonistically apprising who Jesus is? And if he chooses to believe what Scripture says Jesus is, look what it goes on to say. It says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. You know, Peter's writing this at a time that these, these Christians that found themselves elect exiles among the diaspora, that they're in the midst of an honor-shame-based culture. And so there are people in their culture that, that, that blame certain things happening on the Christians. They would say, oh, because of you... And, and your refusal to offer up this sacrifice, my mother died. Because of you and your refusal to engage in this practice, my business is doing awful. And so you should be ashamed of where you are. It's all your fault. You should be ashamed of where you are. And so Peter writes to them, and he wants them to understand that their honor or shame is not based upon how society feels about them, but is based upon the truth of the text applied to their lives. Now, some of you might have family, you might have friends, people surround you that, that, that beat you over the head with either atheism or they say that Christianity is intellectually untenable. 
You can't hold on to it. It's inconsistent. And so they're, they're, they're in, in, in some sense, seeking to bring shame on you and to use that shame to bring you into what they would say is a right response in an eyes-open view and appraisal of the world. This is what Peter would say to you. If you can't explain all the various nuances, somebody comes to you and they believe that the earth is billions of years old and you are on the young earth side of the question and you believe that it's thousands of years old, it, it, it's not on you to seek to untangle all these things and thereby lead them out of their disbelief. It is always, listen to me on this, this is so incredibly important and encouraging, especially for evangelism, it is always the role and work of the Holy Spirit that produces life in someone. Always that. When you believe that it's anything else, if you fall or fail in front of one of your friends, in front of one of your family members, you feel like, oh my goodness, I'm an abject failure, and now they're never going to come to know Jesus because I drank the milk instead of giving them the glass. Oh, oh God, I would that I would have given them the glass of milk. How ridiculous does that sound when you say it out loud? It's always the work and role of the Holy Spirit in someone's life that produces life in them. It's, and, and it's nothing that we are able to do. We are ambassadors for Christ. We are not Christ. We are not the Holy Spirit. And in us, he says, look, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. You can't be put to shame because your honor is based in him. Look back at chapter 1 and verse 7. Chapter, chapter 1 and verse 7. The Christian's honor and their receiving of it is, is integrally tied to their association with Jesus Christ. There at the last part of verse 7, he says, he's talking about our inheritance. He says, so in the end, it may be found to result in glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The honor due for the Christian isn't something they receive in this lifetime. The honor is always something that belongs to Jesus. And the Christian receives this honor when he comes back or they die. This is the role of the Christian's life. You spend all of your life living as a testimony for Jesus Christ in either your death or his return. That honor finally becomes something that you're able to attain. But look what he goes on to talk about. He moves into this discussion. And he, he moves from this person who believes, this subset of people who believe in culture, and he begins to move into these people who don't believe. Now you might say out there, you're like, well, I don't disbelieve I'm not found in unbelief. I'm just, I'm undecided. I'm undecided. I'm undecided. And so this was, this was a large number of the students, Valerie and I had an opportunity to share with. They'd say, I think probably something's out there, but I'm, I'm undecided on what it is. Can I tell you that whether you're angry at God, you're undecided on his ultimate reality, or you're certain of his lack of existence, no matter which one of those you find yourself in or some shade therein, you're an unbeliever. It doesn't matter if you're antagonistic in your unbelief. It doesn't matter if you're apathetic in your unbelief. There are only really two categories when it comes to Scripture. Those who believe and those who don't. There are many different subgenres that we've created, and we find people all on this spectrum of unbelief. But ultimately, when you boil it down, there are two camps. You either believe in Jesus, you reckon this, this cornerstone is chosen and precious, or you remain in unbelief. And if you remain in unbelief, this whole next section is for you. Look what he goes on to say about them. 
for those who do not believe. And he quotes out of Psalm 118, verse 22. He says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, Jesus applies this same verse to himself in Matthew 21, 42. And when in the context of Psalm 118, it's this Davidic king that's come back and he is he's besting and sending out these foreign nationals who have sought to come in and, and take over the kingdom. And so it's always this representation of, of what does it say is. He says the stone that the builders rejected. And so we recognize that for some unbelievers, they come to the person of Jesus Christ and they look at it and they actually engage. And then at the end of their engagement, they say it's, it's, it's not something worth regarding. It's not something of any real value. And so they cast it off. They push it off and they say, this has no place for me. This has no bearing in my life. This has no bearing in reality. And so they're active in their rejection of the gospel. For others, they are passive in their rejection of the gospel. They simply choose not to make a decision on the person of Jesus. What Peter is doing here is connecting all of them within one vein. He says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The rejection of Jesus does not negate the role that he serves cosmically. Do you understand this? Scripture describes Jesus as being this cornerstone. So it could be for you that you completely reject Jesus. You say he has no value. There's no purpose to him. Scripture comes to you and says that no, Jesus is actually the cornerstone in describing and saying that there is no faith, there is no hope in life outside of understanding Jesus for who he is. It's critically important that we understand exactly the role and the function of cornerstone. The cornerstone was laid down, like it sounds, on the corner of a building. And from that one stone being laid, they knew all the proportions of the way the building was going to fall out. So they knew the width, they knew the length, they, they knew the height on the basis of this one stone. And so the imagery that Peter's developing here, he's trying to drive at the function of how incredibly important Jesus is for all things. If you fail to understand who Jesus is, there's no way to get Christianity right. I can't tell you the sure number of people that I've met with that when I've explained the gospel to them and asked them, you know, what would you do if you stood before a holy God? What would you say? And they would say, well, I've been a pretty good person in the main. I've been a pretty good person in the main. I've never killed anyone, anybody, which makes me feel very, very comfortable. Like that they would readily admit they've never killed anybody. They've wanted to, but they've never actually killed anybody. I just feel so comfortable being in a locked room together with this person. Oh, this is fantastic. Where's the exit? And so they seem to describe this idea that the morality is on this trend and God is this very incredibly forgiving person that they've heard of and he's not at all concerned with righteousness. But when they have this understanding of him, they completely misunderstand who Jesus is. You see, the way Jesus became the cornerstone to all faith is surrendering his life for everybody. Jesus didn't surrender his life for good people. And the sooner the church gets out that message that Jesus didn't die for good and perfect people, but he died for all people, the better off we'll all be. You see, Jesus died for Slavo, this guy who lived to have sex with as many women as he possibly could, to be as popular and as well-known on this campus as he possibly could to try and channel his, his long-lost machismo the best he possibly could. No, he's Slavic. There's no machismo working in his life, so you understand that. But this was his God. It was his sexual appetite. It was his physical prowess. And in the end, he just assumed things would probably kind of work together somehow, some way. 
be it the spaghetti monster or Jesus. But the way that scripture records it here, he says, look, this thing that you've cast off, this thing you've looked at and you said it's ultimately of no value and of no worth, the way that God has set it up, you cannot miss the person of who Jesus is. He's the cornerstone. He gives all directionality in life and the decision you make upon who Jesus is is the most important decision you could ever make. And the decision you make upon who Jesus is places you within the camp of those forgiven who believe or those who remain unforgiven on the basis of their continued unbelief. Look what he goes on to describe it as. This is, this is pretty wild. He says, this cornerstone that the builders rejected, that, that you incidentally, person who's yet to submit your life to Jesus, you have rejected He's become a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. He's become a, a stone of stumbling. When we lived in Norway, in between different rooms, they would, they would have kind of the threshold between the rooms, and they would call it a troll trap. And you could always spot people who were new to the country who had just moved there because they would walk from one room to the next, and they would bam and just drive that big toe right into the troll trap. And then they would do the hop, skip, jump, and cuss, right? We've all done that dance move. And so... They would do that over and over and over again, and we recognized that every room had this when you'd move from one room to the next. Jesus is this cosmic stumbling stone for everyone in life. He's this cosmic stumbling stone for everyone in life. Each of us encounter Jesus in some way, shape, or form, and when you encounter Jesus, you are forced to make a decision. Will he continue to be this thing that I stumble over? Or will he be this thing that I receive and accept? For the person who remains in unbelief, Jesus will always be a stumbling stone for you. I'm not saying this to issue any type of a judgment on your life. I'm telling you this. This is what scripture says. Jesus will always be an obstacle for you. And at some point in your life, when you die, you will have to give a response about the decision you made concerning who Jesus is. Scripture records and says Jesus is the most precious, incredible thing ever, that Jesus died for you, and that in his death for you, he took on your sin, your punishment. He took on the wrath of God for you. And in his rising again, in his resurrection, he became this cornerstone, this thing that beckons you to come and to receive the free mercy and grace of God. He's a stone of stumbling. And this curious phrase comes up next. He says he is a rock of offense. How could Jesus be offensive? What does that even mean? How is, how is Jesus offensive? Well, you see, for all those who choose unbelief, and recognize it is a choice. You're choosing unbelief. For all those who choose unbelief, you're choosing of, of, to, un, to not believe in Jesus. The Bible calls it sin. There's some things in life you get to wait for. There's the contract that's going to expire and you're choosing to renew it or not. There is the cable package to sign up for. There is the, 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 the test out package where all of us kind of got hooked in at one point in time where the, they come to you and they're like, for $15 a month, you can have 5,000 channels in a DVR. And you're like, five, in a DVR? I can record stuff I'm not even gonna watch for my neighbors, this is amazing. Yes, every room, yes. 
the fine print says after two and a half days, the price goes up to $10,000, right? I mean, this is kind of how these things are. You get the guy on the phone, you're like, $10,000? He's like, didn't you read the fine print? No, of course not. No one reads the fine print. I thought it was a test. I thought I could see, and I did love it, but not $10,000 worth. What can I do? How do I get out of this? And so we have this type of arrangement in our society. We understand this. There's this trial period. And so we come to our understanding in Christianity, and we suppose that that surely God must have some type of trial period. Surely he must have some type of period where I can just kind of, you know, look at him and decide, and, and he's holding my decision in abeyance. He's saying, look, there is no punishment. There is no penalty for you while you're in this phase. You are safe. And so while Chase is in this phase of trying to decide, he's safe. Nothing's going to happen to him. Until he drives on I-30 and runs into Linda Acker and she crushes him. Right? Road, road rage gone wild. And so this idea is, is, is crazy. None of us know how long we have. None of us know how long we have. None of us know how, how good our lives will be tomorrow. None of us know that if we'll wake up tomorrow unable to see. And we go to the doctor. He says, you have a tumor pressing on your brain. It looks like we can give you a week. None of us know. To remain in unbelief is to remain apart from God. This cosmic tripping over Jesus ends up leading us to Utterly reject him and be lost in sin. To remain in unbelief or indecision is to remain opposed to God. Because you refuse to recognize the free thing he's given you in the person of Jesus Christ as precious. And to base your life on it. God's not calling you to be perfect. He's calling you to receive his mercy. He's calling you to receive the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on your behalf look what he says next talking about this group of unbelievers again he says they stumble because they disobey the word and recognize it's it's this idea of the word which has transferred one group from unbelief to belief the christian themselves is is only by the grace of god been moved from unbelief to belief if you look back in chapter 1 and verse 22, it says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. And when we went through this, we described that the truth is the gospel. The truth is the gospel. So the Christian has been sanctified. They've been made holy before God by their submission to what his word says and their acceptance of that. And so for the unbeliever, they look at it, they stumble, they trip, they fall, they sin. Because they disobey the word. They refuse to believe what the Bible says about Jesus. It's a critical decision. It's so incredibly important. And it's the church's privilege to communicate it with everyone we come in contact with. Tastefully, graciously, lovingly, in an appropriate time and context. Everyone we come into contact with, this message is a burden on us because we've been forgiven. And we know what it is to receive the shame of, of unbelief, and we want to beckon them to come to see God as this classic sanctuary in Isaiah 14, 8 14. So we beckon them come. 
Now look at this part that we typically get stuck on. It says they stumble because they disobey the word. And he says, as they were destined to do. Some of you here today, you don't believe in Jesus. You, 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 perhaps you grew up in church. You just have never made a personal decision. You come to a verse like this and you say, this is my lot in life. It seems cosmically unfair, but this is my destiny. This is what God has for me. I can never escape it. I am foreknown before the foundation of the world to be damned by God. And this is how you read this verse. Look at this. Go back to verse 6. What God has done is to establish Jesus, this chosen and precious cornerstone. And your decision on him lands you in one of two camps. God is not keeping you in unbelief. Your refusal to submit and believe is what keeps you in unbelief. Look what he does here. Verse 6, he says, Behold, I am laying. It's this Greek word, tithe me. It means to put or to place or to make. What is he laying there? He is laying in this verse a cornerstone, Jesus, chosen and precious. And then when you get down into verse 8, effectively what he's doing is using this same word again. And he says they stumble because they disobey the word as it was appointed to be. So, inasmuch as you reject the word, refuse to believe and submit, you will always be in unbelief. You can't come to God and ask him to renegotiate the contract. You can't come and say, look, I found this loophole whereby I can come into heaven. But effectively, the way that God has set it up, he has foreknown Jesus, chapter 1 in, in verse 20. He says, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you. And look at this. Our identity, the God's foreknowledge of us is always tied to Jesus. God's foreknowledge of us is always tied to the person of Jesus who through him, verse 21, are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. For what purpose? So that your faith and hope are in God. God laid down Jesus as his chosen and precious cornerstone. And he beckons you, come. God didn't set it up and establish it so that you would be caught in this sick cycle of unbelief and never able to move beyond it. We see in chapter 2 and verse 12 that we are called to manifest a bold presence of Christianity so that when those who speak against God may glorify God on the day of visitation. And so we see evidence that he's saying live boldly your faith in Jesus Christ so that those who are currently in unbelief might escape it. In chapter 3 and verse 1 he speaks to the wife whose husband is an unbeliever and he says live boldly the gospel in front of your husband. So that may, maybe he'll move from this being this person who disobeys the gospel to this person who readily submits to it and comes to know Jesus Christ. The temptation for the Christian is to accept Jesus Christ as this cornerstone chosen and precious, but then over the course of your life to begin to build on something else, build on your personality, to build on your job, to build on your spouse, to build on your family, and to establish everything you do in life in this kind. So what this verse is doing for the Christian is calling them back to this understanding of focusing on your foundation. 
It's not your budding medical practice, your, your wonderful new relationship. It's not your legal practice. It's not your health. It's not your family growing or struggling. Jesus is the only foundation for every person. This is why the, the Christian can only build on him and the unbeliever is always going to trip on him until the point when he or she submits their life and recognizes Jesus for who Scripture says he is. Unbeliever, God's desire for you is that you would come to know him. That you would recognize Jesus as this chosen and precious cornerstone. Can I tell you that God loves you compassionately? That he has endured your unbelief because of his great mercy towards you. In Isaiah 8, 14, he says that God desires to be for you a sanctuary. He desires for you to be this place where you might come in and receive forgiveness of sin. For the Christian and the, the unchristian, the decision upon who Jesus is is critically important. Those two students we shared with Slavo thought it was this, this, this hopelessly ridiculous thing. Daniel, the student who had an equally uh, robust heritage of unbelief and atheism, as he apprised who Jesus is, eventually he submitted his life to Christ and cried out for forgiveness. They're both faced with the same decision. One chose Jesus, and one chose himself. Let me pray for us. Father, this morning we recognize that each of us has a decision to make. For those who are Christians, we have submitted our lives to you, but our, our flesh occasionally cries out that we might be satisfied, that we would build our lives upon those things that we desire, those things that we think are important, more important than submitting ourselves to you. And so, Father, I pray that the Christian, they would see this chosen and precious cornerstone, this this plumb line to bring them back. And, Father, we pray for those who have yet to submit themselves to you. Some of us are thinking about our families at home. Some of us are thinking about our friends at work tomorrow. God, that you would direct the Christians in this room, their intensity and focus upon being gracious in their extension of the gospel to those who are in unbelief. And Father, we pray for those in this room who are unbelievers, that, that they would recognize Jesus for who he is, that you would open their eyes, remove the blinders, and that you would call them to faith, that they would cry out, forgive me, and they would receive forgiveness in the name of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for the movement of your spirit in these next moments as we have an opportunity to respond to the call of the gospel upon each of our lives. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.